Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction, the Tale to Alki specials, where we'll be examining the end of the world, one apocalypse at a time. And survive while there's people crying, people dying everywhere around. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. We have a special guest on the show today, Stephen Schwartz. Stephen is an expert on nuclear weapons. He's been studying nuclear weapons policy, particularly in the US, for decades. His book, The Atomic Order, was the first ever true survey of the real financial cost of nuclear weapons. He's been the editor and publisher of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, who manage the famous Doomsday Clock, and publish both scholarly and popular literature on the existential threats, including nuclear weapons. He edited the Non-Proliferation Review, and is currently an adjunct professor at Middlebury. He also runs an excellent social media feed on Twitter, at Atomic Analyst, where he keeps us all up to date on nuclear weapons and political developments. I was delighted to have him on the show. We sat down for an interview about nukes in the modern era and under Trump, the real financial cost of nuclear weapons, the biggest risks that they pose to us, dispelling nuclear myths, and what we can do to help keep our society safer. I also find out why he tried to position his college to stock up on suicide pills in the 1980s. I hope you enjoy the show. Stephen, thanks very much for coming on the show during what I know is busy time. The last few episodes, we've given an overview of some aspects of nuclear history, and I interviewed Marty Pfeiffer about his views on nuclear weapons. And I wanted to open today with the same question I asked him, which is basically, how did you first become interested in nuclear weapons? And what, if anything, led to your career taking the path that it has done? Well, thank you, Thomas. It's... uh... It's a good question. I, I do get asked it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I got engaged in this issue in the uh, early to mid 1980s, before I went to college, actually. Um, I'd have to say, actually, my my political awakening, as it were, came with the uh, Soviet, Union, Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. And there was talk at that time in the United States of reinstating the draft in order to fight the Soviets in Afghanistan. And that concerned me greatly because although I wasn't of draft age at that point, I was going to be quite soon. And uh, I, I did not feel like going off to war and possibly dying, let alone killing people. Um, and uh, it got me thinking about the, the broader world. Uh, and then Ronald Reagan was elected president in 1980. And uh, in some uh, sense, I have a, a feeling today that of kind of flashing back to that period because you have uh, then as now a president who talks about building up the nuclear arsenal, about fighting and maybe winning nuclear wars, uh, vastly increasing the amount of money that we're spending on our nuclear weapons, uh, init- you know, starting up crises with people are getting involved in crises with countries. Uh, they either have or want nuclear weapons. So um, it, it feels like I'm kind of going back to the future in a sense. Uh, but all of that stuff at that time got me very interested in and concerned about the state of the world and nuclear weapons in particular. And I have to credit my mother in part for my involvement, because at that time she was engaged and working with a group uh, that none of your listeners will have heard of. Uh, probably, uh, called the Thursday Night Group, which was a small organization uh, based in uh, Santa Monica, California. And its purpose was to facilitate uh, conversations among 
people about uh, nuclear weapons and nuclear war related issues. So the idea was uh, if you were uh, someone who was interested in these issues, um, you would convene a group of your friends or maybe coworkers or whomever uh, at your house or somewhere. And a Thursday night group facilitator would come in. Uh, there would be a, you know, a brief conversation, setting some ground rules. Uh, you know, a film of some sort would be shown about these issues and then there would be a discussion about them. And the idea would be not to, you know, rail against nuclear weapons or say how wonderful they were, but really just to have an informed and engaged conversation among people, probably, uh, you know, in some cases of, of differing views about this with the idea of starting a dialogue to understand people's perspectives better and then move the conversation toward, you know, well, what can we do about this? You know, can we, how can we contact our legislators to make our views known? Maybe we can write a letter to the editor, um, you know, about a, a particular news story. Uh, if there's an election coming up, maybe we can vote. And so she was engaged in this and working with this. I actually got involved with them for a while. I was trained as a facilitator, but it impressed me that at a time when she had a full-time job, she was doing this. And then when I went off to college and the issues became even more pressing, I realized, you know, here she is doing this and I'm in college with, you know, quote unquote, free time. And uh, I became more engaged uh, on these issues uh, in school and eventually hooked up with a relatively new program on campus uh, ultimately becoming a research assistant there and then a teaching assistant um, uh, by the end of my uh, my college days. Um, but I spent a lot of time reading and writing and talking about these issues and actually ended up, uh, for better or for worse, kind of skewing my college studies toward nuclear weapons and nuclear war issues. I took a lot of different classes. I majored in sociology, but um, I wherever I could, I would find an angle to fit nuclear weapons in, which at the time I thought probably wasn't that good an idea because there were so many other things I could be focused on. But since it became my career, I guess it probably wasn't all bad. My generation didn't think so much about the imminence of nuclear war because we were sort of growing up and becoming politically aware in this in this post-Cold War era mm -hmm. when nuclear weapons weren't uh, so big on the agenda. And yet recently now with North Korea and with Donald Trump's instability and things like this, people are thinking about it a lot more. So um, in that sort of vein of youthful uh, politics and political awakenings, I wanted to talk about nuclear activism, because there was sure. this marvellous profile of you in the LA Times that you tweeted out recently, which mentions this uh, college campaign at UC Santa Cruz to mandate the university to make proper and visible preparations for the event of a nuclear war. And this includes things like digging up bunkers and stockpiling suicide pills for all of the students. So would you like to talk about that and your experiences with nuclear weapons activism more generally? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, that was 33 years ago. Um, uh, and um, it was uh, it was fun and interesting. Um, it was actually I think it was the second activist, nuclear activist related activity that I had done on campus. The first was actually my first year in school. I believe I was a freshman uh, or Lockheed Missiles and Space Company, now Lockheed Martin, has a facility in the mountains in Santa Cruz above <clears throat> the university campus. Uh, the campus is on the uh, on the coast of, uh, of, of Central California. And uh, there's, there's this facility up there that that at the time was building 
uh, Trident II ballistic missiles. Your listeners will know all about Trident II because they're the same missiles that your submarines use. So at this, this was the time when those missiles were not yet deployed, but they were being built. And, um, they were building the rocket motors and everything. And, uh, they, uh, Lockheed wanted to, um, expand the facility to expand production. And in order to do that, they had to go to the Santa Cruz city council and specifically, I think a land use committee to get approval for this expansion and the local, uh, what was it? There was like a, like a peace and nonviolence center. There were several groups. Santa Cruz is a very liberal place, but there was several groups that were already engaged on peace and war issues. And they got wind of this, of course, because it was a public issue. And, um, there started to be a number of people in the community that were opposed to this idea and, and wanted to take a stand against Lockheed, uh, in part to take a stand against the, uh, nuclear arms race. So this was like 1984. Uh, so Ronald Reagan's been office in office about a year and a half. And, uh, there was a meeting of the land use planning committee or whatever it was called at the time. You know, anybody who knows anything about local politics knows that, you know, these kind of meetings generally don't generate any sort of significant attention or attendance. I mean, unless it's really controversial. Well, this was, and there were hundreds of people that showed up, including a number of students. And so I'm there as a, a freshman student, you know, 18 years old, and I'm talking about the dangers of nuclear weapons. I mean, people took stands on this because of environmental concerns, because it was, you know, not good use of the land or whatever. I took a stand because I didn't want to see nuclear weapons being built, you know, essentially next door to my college campus. So a number of us testified and we succeeded in forcing a second meeting of the committee because they had so much to consider and they took additional testimony. And I believe I testified again at that. And the end result was that the committee voted against the expansion, even though it would have benefited the city economically. And that was certainly the line that Lockheed was taking. We didn't stop the arms race. We didn't even stop Trident II missile production. They simply expanded a facility a little bit north of us in Sunnyvale. But we did take a stand that said this work will not, shall not happen in Santa Cruz. And that that felt good to me. That empowered me. So um, the following year, a group of students, uh, again, you know, the, the, the context for this is that there is increasing talk of fighting and winning nuclear wars, spending billions, tens of billions of dollars on new nuclear weapons. Uh, tensions with Russia or the Soviet Union, rather, are are ratcheting up. And so in that context, a bunch of students created an initiative to put on the ballot for the student ballot for the spring vote. Uh, and they called themselves the Student Alliance for Fallout Emergency. And the idea was to and the idea was to raise awareness on campus and beyond about the futility of civil defense in the event of an all-out nuclear war. This wasn't a unique idea to Santa Cruz. It was actually building on something that had been voted on at Brown University in Rhode Island, I think about a year or two earlier, and other campuses had taken it up. But but we did, and I, I didn't found the group, but I, I came on board pretty quickly because I was already working on these issues. And um, I developed some some cool posters for them, looking at all the different targets in California. But the idea was, you know, you mentioned suicide pills and other things. The idea was not that we were cynical and that we, you know, we were, we wanted to die, you know, quite to the contrary. The idea was to show that there was no defense. There was no recourse in the event of a nuclear war. There was no point in trying to go anywhere. At that point, 
the Reagan administration was promoting something called crisis relocation planning, where in the event of a nuclear war, we would mass evacuate every major city and move people out into the countryside. And if you know anything about traffic in the United States or anywhere else, that's impossible, right? So it was a stupid idea, and we wanted to call attention to that. Uh, and so the idea of promoting you know, stockpiling of suicide pills on campus so that in the event of a nuclear war, you could go as a student to the student health center or request a pill uh, to take your own life before the warheads all start exploding around you was to point out that this was, you know, that this was as stupid a response as trying to go and, you know, dig a hole in the ground and cover it with some dirt or find some, you know, uh, old Cold War era fallout shelter or something like that. And it generated a huge amount of discussion and controversy on campus, which was exactly what we were hoping for. Um, and, it, and in fact, we generated, there were other things on the ballot that year, including a vote on whether the campus mascot should be the banana slug uh, or, or the California sea lion. And the banana slugs won. So that's, you know, go, go slugs. Um, Santa Cruz is a pretty idiosyncratic campus even today. Um, but because of that, we, we generated the largest student turnout for any vote on campus ever up to that point. And unfortunately, the initiative lost. It lost narrowly. Uh, but the chancellor, uh, who was opposed to it uh, on political grounds, did see the wisdom in further educating people about the issues. And so he authorized the production of what became known as the um, Nuclear Information Handbook, which I worked on the first two editions of, uh, that was given to every student, every incoming freshman every year for several years, uh, that contained a variety of information about nuclear weapons, the nuclear policy issues, even nuclear energy and other things, and the, you know, with the, with the purpose of informing people, because it's not something that you would normally learn about in the, in the news media or even in classes on campus. So we viewed it as a, as a, as a net win. And, um, that was really the, the beginning of my days of, you know, fighting to, to save the world for people like you. It's, uh, it's, it's just fascinating to think about the, plans the contingency plans that are in place for if there is a nuclear war i remember reading about what they have in britain and obviously there's this idea that we'll get a four minute warning but also that some of my favorite radio shows have been stockpiled to broadcast to the survivors to keep up morale and it's just the idea that people have uh, you know contemplated a post-nuclear world and drawn up some vague plans but re realistically perhaps as you say civil defense is not um going to be you know it, it's not going to work as it will on paper certainly that Certainly um, then it wouldn't have with as many nuclear weapons as we're around today. If you're talking mm -hmm. about a, a nuclear terrorist incident or a dirty bomb, which is even less, you know, it's not a nuclear weapon. It's just a bomb with radioactive materials. You know, civil defense may make some sense. But the idea that, you know, you can, with enough planning, uh, you and or your country can survive, uh, you know, a nuclear war, I think makes it more likely that political leaders and the public that, you know, votes them into office see this as, you know, one potential solution to, you know, a particularly naughty security problem. And that certainly at that time, that was something that we were trying to uh, disabuse people of. And I think that's still very much um, 
you know, the case today. So speaking of things that don't work as they do on paper, or perhaps not, one of the issues that's definitely fascinated me while I've been researching nuclear weapons to the extent that I have is the command and control structure. I think we have this idea in our heads that, you know, officially it works. There's the nuclear football, the president gives an order, uh, maybe his council or some other people have to ratify that, or the Secretary of Defense is consulted. But but then, of course, there's the question of how it might actually work in reality if people believe that we are under attack, issues of things like pre-delegation and so on. And, of course, in all of the famous accidents, incidents, and hairy moments when accidental nuclear war seemed to be a possible threat, uh, it, it's not clear whether the command and control structure would have worked as intended. So, I mean, do you think that the command and control structure specifically for the US keeps us safe? And what are the issues that keep you up at night regarding the potential for nuclear conflict? Are you more sort of concerned about accidental launches or lost nuclear weapons or failures of diplomacy? Sure. No, those are all excellent questions. And in fact, I, I, uh, yeah, I, I initiated, I, I got my start in this field by actually researching nuclear command and control issues. It's one of the very first things I, I looked at because it fascinated me uh, as well. And uh, things have not changed dramatically since the end of the Cold War or even since I started looking at this over 30 years ago, uh, for better or for worse. So, you know, if you look at it uh, uh, objectively, so, you know, we haven't had a nuclear war. Uh, so one could argue that the command and control system has worked. On the other hand, there have been a number of close calls because of failures uh, of that system. And uh, although none of those failures ended up igniting uh, a nuclear war or even a nuclear incident, um, uh, you know, it, it, we did come much too close. Uh, and, and, and the situation remains, I think, pretty, um, you know, perilous today, notwithstanding what our our leaders say, and, and they want to invest actually tens of billions of dollars in the system to make it even more robust to deal with things like, you know, uh, hacking and cyber warfare and so forth. So uh, I think the most important thing to understand about the, the U.S. nuclear command and control system, and really the same holds true for the uh, for the Russian system and the Soviet system before it. Other countries have, you know, your country, France, uh, China, others have, have somewhat different setups, but our two setups are, are pretty much the same. So on the one hand, you set up a system so that as soon as indications are received that a, a nuclear attack is underway, national leaders have the ability to immediately launch a counter response. That's true in both the United States and Russia. At the same time, you want to make sure that the system is set up so that it fails safe, essentially, so that, you know, there are no, so if there are spurious indications or in just normal peacetime that people cannot use nuclear weapons. And there's a fundamental tension between those two things. You know, it's, 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 it's the always never situation. On the one hand, you, you want the system to be always available to you to launch a nuclear attack. On the other hand, you want to make sure that it can never be used inadvertently. And the tension is that you can't do both of those things well simultaneously. Leaders will say that, you know, the system is safe as designed, and they will point to the fact, as I said, that you know, we have not had a nuclear attack. Uh, but if you had a, if you had set up a system or wanted a system that was truly completely safe, you would never be able to launch uh, a nuclear attack uh, because the, the system wouldn't allow you to do it. And conversely, if you wanted a system that was always available, you know, 100 percent of the time, uh, it wouldn't have some of the constraints and strictures in it that it that it does. So it's worked better than we better, better than it should have. Uh, but it's also 
you know, more prone to failure than we than we understand. And relying on that system and more generally relying on nuclear weapons to keep us, quote unquote, safe, uh, you know, over the long term, I think, is not uh, a sound policy because ultimately, you know, statistics and history, you know, will show us that, you know, nuclear weapons that are built and deployed and prepared for use will ultimately be used. Um, and it's far too easy for them to be used accidentally or inadvertently, uh, it, let alone, you know, somebody deciding that we are actually going to go and initiate a nuclear attack or respond to one. Um, so the system works reasonably well, um, but it is not something that I and, and I do. I am concerned about. I mean, there have been high profile incidents in 1979 and 1980, for example, 1979, uh, a um, uh, uh, somebody at uh, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, the uh, facility in the mountain, for those of you that remember the film uh, War Games, put in a, a training tape into the system because uh, they train constantly, daily, really, to uh, respond to uh, uh, to a nuclear attack. And because of the way the system was configured at the time, the training tape displayed as a real live attack on monitors inside the facility as well as the Strategic Air Command and elsewhere. And for a few fraught minutes, we were convinced that we were under nuclear attack until people realized what was going on. And then a year later, there were a couple incidents where uh, a 46 cent microchip failed and uh, in a communications device and indicated a rapidly escalating series of nuclear missile launches from the Soviet Union against the United States. Again, it was peacetime. And so we were able to determine, uh, you know, because we weren't receiving indications from our early warning radars, for example, that an attack was underway, that, you know, this was a that this was a false alarm. The concern comes in, you know, OK, so that's peacetime and, you know, tensions are relatively low. What happens if you're in the middle of a crisis or even in the middle of a war that's not a nuclear war and you start getting these indications? You're going to be even more primed to respond quickly. And, of course, the whole system is designed to respond immediately because of the concern that the command and control system itself is so fragile that it would not survive a nuclear attack. So if you want to get off your response before your adversary's weapons come in and destroy you and your ability to retaliate, you have to respond immediately. Uh, and that makes it very dangerous because time is at such a premium. Um, you know, the system is set up so that, you know, the president gives an order and four or five minutes later, the missiles start, start flying. Uh, so that, that all makes it exceedingly dangerous. And none of that has really changed. I mean, the whole Cold War, you know, we went through that. The situation's the same today. It doesn't really matter how many tens of billions of dollars we throw at the system as long as we, are seeking to ensure that the president and the president alone can authorize a nuclear attack at any time of the day for any reason at all, uh, we're going to have this uh, danger that we're going to be living with. And therefore, we're going to have the danger of, you know, of an accidental or inadvertent nuclear war. <laughs> and, you know, you mentioned those specific uh, incidents that happened in NORAD where there were false alarms. And of course, similar things happened in the Soviet Union. We talked about the Petrov incident and the Arkhipov incident and things in, in previous shows. And it, it just does go to show, as you say, there's this fundamental tension between having something that's always safe and also always ready to launch within five minutes. Right, right. We've been, I, I think the takeaway for your listeners should be that we uh, in the United States, we in the world, over the course of the Cold War and beyond, have been very, very lucky. 
Uh, I think we can credit the engineers who built these systems. We can credit the officers who control them. Uh, but at the end of the day, luck played a, a big role and a bigger role than most people understand. And luck eventually runs out. Uh, and so basing your the defense of your country or your world on uh, a system that depends in large measure on things working perfectly all of the time and people behaving rationally all of the time and mistakes never happening is really not a sound solution to what is ultimately a political problem. <laughs> That's uh, that quote about having got through the Cold War by you know, luck, skill and divine intervention and the latter in greatest proportion is the kind of thing that comes to mind. So you've you've talked about this fallacy or perhaps you see it as a fallacy of uh, modern day politicians saying, well, we never had a nuclear war and therefore by the magic of hindsight bias, obviously the nuclear deterrent was successful. And I think that's really a theme that perhaps comes through in your book, The Atomic Audit. Uh, which deal, dealt with a topic that's not discussed that often, at least in the US, I think, which is the cost of maintaining a nuclear weapons program. It seems that often it's just taken for granted that the military budget spirals, you can never cut it, and this is the most essential part of the military, so of course you can never uh, vote down spending increases on nuclear weapons. At the same time, we're all aware of these statistics, like the, in the Cold War there were 31,000 nuclear weapons, enough to destroy you know, every hamlet in Russia if you wanted to. Um, and by contrast, China gets by with just a few hundred for its deterrent. And listeners in the UK will remember that the cost was one of the main factors that was debated when we were considering renewing Trident, as you mentioned, our, our nuclear missile system. So when you were writing this book that was this uh, sort of first very comprehensive review of the total cost of the US to nuclear weapons throughout the Cold War, what surprised you? What did the US spend and what did they get for it? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, so the book is, is, was published 20 years ago this June, um, and it is still, uh, relevant and it's still in print for people that are, that are interested in it. Uh, it is the first and so far only look at the comprehensive costs of the U.S. nuclear weapons program going back to its inception, um, in 1940. We had hopes that, uh, uh, you know, other countries would, use it as a model to uh, develop their own cost accounting for their own nuclear weapons programs. But for a variety of reasons, um, that has not happened. We had hoped that the U.S. government would be more uh, concerned about these issues and would develop a better uh, method of counting and reporting on the costs on an annual basis. And that didn't happen for many, many years. But recently, thanks to uh, the intervention of some in Congress, we're starting to get a better picture of what it is where we are spending right now and what we will be spending in the future, which is why people talk about, for example, the, the trillion dollar triad. This is the program that was set up to uh, uh, rejuvenate and rebuild the U.S. nuclear arsenal under President Obama and now is being continued and expanded under President Trump. And it's actually over a trillion dollars now. Uh, so, you know, I guess there's two takeaways. The, the most important one was is that uh we had this assumption going into this project, and it was I, I was the director of it. I was also uh, the co-author of the book, but I had a very talented team of researchers working with me and definitely could not have done it without them. Um, but we all had this assumption, naively as it turns out, that if we simply dug hard enough into the archives and asked the right people and looked in the right places, we would find you know, old ledgers and, and reports that contained information about these costs. And so the first and probably the biggest surprise is that 
those things don't exist, uh, that in fact the government never really kept track of the costs on an ongoing basis. And there was very little concern for a number of years, particularly at the start when things were really getting going, about what the costs were. The emphasis was simply on building nuclear weapons as quickly as possible. And certainly budgets were discussed, but they were often discussed in secret among a very uh, small number of people. And then the rest of Congress, for example, would have to look to, you know, 18 other members who would tell them which way to vote and, you know, why it was important, but not go into any detail about it. The public was completely shut out of the debate. And there wasn't really any line item in a budget that you could point to and see what was being spent. And so one reason why we ended up, as you say, uh, we ended up building over uh, 60,000, 61,000 nuclear weapons. Peak deployment was in 1967 at 31,255. Uh, and we built many, many thousands of ballistic missiles and uh, tens of thousands of uh, non-strategic or tactical nuclear weapons that were deployed in Europe and elsewhere, really around the world and at sea uh, throughout the Cold War. Um, but one really important reason why we did that is that there was a fundamental lack of knowledge about what it was we were spending by everyone, uh, by the people that were overseeing and authorizing these programs in government all the way down to the regular voter. And, you know, if you don't know what something costs you, but you have a general belief that it is a good thing, as many people believe nuclear weapons were, as horrible as their use would be, we believed it was good to have them, you tend to be supportive of it. Uh, in the same way that, you know, if you go to, uh, you know, remodel your house and you have some general idea about, you know, uh, what you want to do to the bathrooms and how you want to update the kitchen and so forth. Um, but if you don't have any idea how much it's costing you uh, and then you start doing it and the costs keep escalating. But you see this really beautiful kitchen and these sparkling bathrooms and this amazing, you know, TV room or whatever. Uh Without understanding what it is that it's costing you, you can get really carried away. And that's what happened to us uh, during the Cold War. So that's really the fundamental surprise. Uh, the other was there is this assumption on the part of people that generally support deterrence but really don't know much about nuclear weapons that deterrence worked. And therefore, everything that we did during the Cold War contributed to nuclear deterrence. But the reality is that there were many, many things that we did and built with regard to nuclear weapons during the Cold War and even beyond, that not only had nothing to do to contribute to nuclear deterrence, but actually actively detracted from it. But again, a lot of this was done out of public view. Uh, there were, you know, relatively <clears throat> few hearings. And so the end result is that, you know, you can still believe that nuclear deterrence worked, however you want to define worked. But the fact is that Hundreds of billions of dollars were wasted on things that really didn't contribute to nuclear deterrence at all. So when you come to the situation that we have today where Donald Trump says he wants our nuclear arsenal to be in tip top shape and he wants it to be much, much larger than anybody else's arsenal, we have to have nuclear superiority, superiority now, he says. It's not simply enough to maintain parity. We have to be bigger and better than everybody else. Um, you know, it's important to understand that the way the nuclear arsenal, the U.S. nuclear arsenal developed, and there was a similar process going on inside the Soviet Union, which even though it was not a, uh, a democracy and even though it was not operating under capitalist rules, some of the very same um, tensions and pushers 
that were involved in, you know, in our making our arsenal the way it was, we're, we're operating there too. Uh, you know, we have, for example, a nuclear triad, this, you know, uh, this, this, this three-legged, uh, uh, deterrent structure where we have nuclear bombers, nuclear submarines, and nuclear armed ballistic missiles in the heartland of the United States. And people look at that and they treat it as really kind of a holy trinity and believe that it is the reason why the Cold War stayed cold. But if you understand, and after reading your book, our book, you would, that, you know, nobody set out to develop the nuclear triad. Nobody had a brilliant idea that if you had weapons on land, at sea, and in the air, each with its own specific set of capabilities and strengths that, that all reinforced each other, uh, that that would somehow make deterrence better than simply having one or two systems. Nobody set out to do that. It happened because, A, we didn't know what we were spending, but also because there was a lot of rivalry between the Air Force and the Army and the Navy, because there was uh, pressure in Congress to build lots of weapons quickly to create jobs in states and districts so people would be happy and they would reelect their senators and congressmen, uh, to competition among our nuclear weapons laboratories, competition between the contractors that were building the delivery systems, the aircraft, the submarines, the missiles, and so forth. All these, and of course, all this being done in secret, all these things combined together to build, to create the system that we had. Nobody ever set out to do it. And so my hope today is, and I think it's a futile hope in our, given our current political situation, is that we step back and look at how we got here, discuss and determine what it is we actually need to be safe and secure, and then look at this from sort of a zero-based planning model and say, okay, rather than saying, okay, here's what we have now, how do we sustain that? Instead say, here's what we need, how do we get that or how do we retain that? And that's a very different uh, process. And if we adopted that model, we would end up spending a lot less money than we're currently planning on spending and probably have the same, if not a better level of security. And not incidentally, we would also be in a much better position to dissuade other countries from seeking to acquire nuclear weapons or expand their nuclear arsenals because we would be showing some res relative restraint on our part. I mean, I think you can see almost in, in an atmosphere where everyone's, you know, afraid of the Soviets, afraid of a missile gap waking up. And then you also have the desire for this pork barrel stuff where people want spending for their local districts. You have the army competing with the navy, competing with the air force. You have congressmen who aren't going to ever say no to an increase in nuclear budgets. And you have, crucially, as you point out, all of these people aren't talking to each other or auditing what they're doing as they go along you can end up with this kind of ridiculous overspend, which I guess, I mean, in, in your book, you quote it as being $5 trillion. And you just think, how, how much of that would you actually need to maintain an effective deterrent, like China's few hundred missiles that they have, which presumably would act as a nuclear deterrent for them against right. any other state? And, you know, how much of that money could have been spent on anything you like, or tax cuts if you're on the right wing, if you like, but, you know, anything right. else? Well, that's that's the thing. You know, China definitely has a very different deterrence model than the United States does, than Russia does. Uh, I, I My strong feeling about this, having looked at this issue for decades now, is that the United States uh, and Russia are outliers when it comes to, uh, you know, how we practice nuclear deterrence, how we implement it, as it were. Uh, nobody, you know, thankfully is going to try to emulate 
what we did and what Russia did during the Cold War. There's not the need. There are not the resources. I mean, sure, there's a, a low-level nuclear arms race going on now between India and Pakistan, and it's dangerous. It's one of the most dangerous places in the world right now, probably second at the moment to what's going on with North Korea and the United States, but still bad. Um, but they're not going to build tens of thousands of nuclear weapons. They don't, they don't need to. We, we had and we still have an open-ended view of nuclear deterrence. Um, where basically anything goes. Part of that is because we have this nuclear umbrella. It's not a good analogy, but it's what we call it, that we extend our nuclear arsenal over our allies to protect them. And that, you know, in the view of people that support this, requires a lot more nuclear weapons than we would need if we were simply trying to defend uh, our own territory. But even, you know, be that as it may, you know, we, we built a lot more, uh, than we needed to. So you asked about surprises earlier. The other, the other big surprise after we figured out that there was no sort of, uh, repository for these numbers and we had to go back and, and reconstruct them as best we could is that it turns out that something like, you know, over a third of the entire military budget over the Cold War was devoted to nuclear weapons. And people, you know, before we came out with our, analysis, which is very conservative, by the way, the actual number is in all likelihood much, much higher than that. Um, we wanted to err on the side of caution. Uh, you know, people were saying, oh, maybe it's five or 10 percent. Well, yeah, sure, five or 10 percent. And even today, in talking about the nuclear buildup that Donald Trump wants to do, advocates are saying, oh, it's only like five, six percent of the of defense budget. We can certainly afford that. That's a tiny percentage. But the defense budget in the United States is huge. And over six percent of it over 30 years is a lot of money. I mean, like more than the national budget of many states in the world. So uh, it's it's not a tiny sum. And so we ended up, you know, building a lot more than we needed, which ended up creating a lot a bigger danger, but also created a huge amount of of nuclear waste and endangered the health and the lives of people that were working in our nuclear weapons complex, for example, a lot of people, you know, speaking in favor of nuclear weapons say, well, they kept the Cold War cold. Nobody died during the Cold War. Not true. We killed hundreds and thousands of our own people with our own nuclear weapons production and testing activities. The same thing happened in the Soviet Union and to a lesser extent, really, in every country that has develop nuclear weapons. You end up hurting your own rather than the people that you're building the weapons to defend against. So that's the that's the tragic irony of the Cold War. But, the, you know, the big surprise, you mentioned five trillion um, in today's dollars, because the, the book is 20 years old. It's really approaching 10 trillion dollars, which is an enormous amount of money. And, you know, what what else could we have spent that money on uh, that would have made, made the United States strong and secure? I mean, you don't have to be you know, a, uh, uh, you know, a progressive or a liberal and, you know, well, let's spend it all on education or let's spend it all on healthcare, whatever. You could spend a lot of it on, on conventional military if you wanted to, if you needed to. And those weapons we do actually use on a fairly regular basis. You know, nuclear weapons sit, you know, you build them and then they sit somewhere and they suck up enormous amounts of money for maintenance and training and security, which is a huge cost. And then you hope and pray that you never have to use them, but you're, of course, constantly prepared to have to be able to use them, which is a huge cost um, in and of itself. So that was another surprise, the percentage of money that we allocated to this, as well as the actual total. And, of course, when we when we published the book and 
you know, uh, unveiled it, you know, that that's what got the uh, uh, the most attention. But there's a lot of other interesting stories in the book uh, that I think are, are still germane today that, you know, people if more people knew and understand understood these issues, I think we would be in a much different place today with regard to our thinking about how many nuclear weapons do we need? How much should we be spending on them? Uh, as well as looking at what other countries are doing. Um, but as popular as the book was, it still hasn't reached up into the, uh, the right hands. But we're, 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 you know, I continue to talk about it and work on it. The book, as I said, is still in print and, you know, we still have, uh, I still have a platform to talk about these issues, including right here now with you. So, um, <laughs> continue to raise them and, um, one day people, you know, enough of the right people will listen and we'll, we'll see a real change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's hope so. As part of our series on apocalyptic threats, I wanted to look into cyber warfare. We think of it as information warfare at the moment, but of course it has been used for physical infrastructure attacks in the case of Stuxnet when Iranian centrifuges were disabled. Um, at the same time, the recent nuclear posture review has raised this spectre of a nuclear response to certain kinds of cyber attack. Is this the kind of thing that worries you? Is a cyber attack on nuclear weapons infrastructure feasible? Or could it be as the systems are upgraded, modernized, rebuilt uh, from the old versions that were air gapped and were never sort of put in contact with the Internet? And um, what about this question of retaliating to a cyber attack with a nuclear attack? So, yeah. So to the first question, the system as currently deployed operating is is relatively invulnerable to a cyber attack directly. But keep in mind that the nuclear systems depend on and, and, and connect with a lot of other systems that are used for all sorts of, you know, military communications. And those are vulnerable. So to the extent that those could be attacked and manipulated, particularly in a crisis, it does raise concerns about what could happen on the nuclear side of things. I don't think it's, it is, I am not concerned that somebody will hack into the system and be able to launch our nuclear missiles. That's not how it works. Although uh, there was uh, a situation that developed not too many years ago where it turns out that the uh, the system of communication system that we use to communicate most frequently with our uh, ballistic missile submarines, the Trident submarines that patrol in the Atlantic and the, the Pacific Ocean, these, these VLF, very low frequency antennas, it turns out that system was hackable and it was possible for somebody to break into the system and send a what looked like an authentic launch order to the submarines and that that would uh potentially uh allow the submarines to um you know surface and begin begin their launch uh preparations uh that was a real concern that was identified in part by a colleague of mine who worked on atomic audit with me and as a result, they immediately, the Navy immediately changed its communication and launch procedures so that they have to have a second confirming indication before they will act on any launch order that they receive through that network. Um, so that was a, that was a concern that was identified. And there may be others out there that we uh, that still exist that we that we don't know about. I think my my main concern about um cyber warfare and about uh, nuclear crises in general and nuclear weapons in general, especially in a crisis, is that, um, again, the system is, is always primed to be able to go off, as it were, very, very quickly. So in normal peacetime circumstances, uh, if, if there is an anomaly 
uh, a spurious indication, uh, a false alarm or whatever, uh, you have time to deal with it. In the midst of a, uh, a crisis or an actual war that has the potential to escalate into a nuclear war when everything ratchets up and people are operating on a much higher tempo and tensions are increasing, you know, when a false alarm occurs or when a cyber, when a hacking incident occurs or something like that, there's less time to deal with it and probably less propensity to treat it as a false alarm. And so my concern is not so much that we will, you know, deliberately fall into this or somebody will manipulate us into doing this, but we will accidentally you know, stumble into this to, through a series of circumstances that under normal times would have been, you know, avoidable. So people talk about, you know, Donald Trump and, and nuclear weapons, for example. I'm, I'm not, I don't spend nights worrying or, you know, go to sleep worrying that he's going to wake up in the middle of the night and instead of tweeting out his rage, he's going to call over his military aid with the, the briefcase, the nuclear football and contact the Pentagon and say, I want to, you know, turn North Korea into glass. Uh, I think that's, it's, it's possible. I, 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 that is definitely a possibility. There's nothing that would stop the president from doing that short of mass, uh, insubordination across all the way down the military chain of command. So I don't want to make light of that. It's not likely, but it is possible. However, it's more likely that, for example, you know, we use, we attack Syria again, uh, because we want to send a message about chemical weapons. And in the process, we kill, a number of Russian military advisors. Tensions escalate with Russia, and before you know it, we're getting into a full-blown war with Russia, which could escalate to potentially nuclear war. That's what concerns me, you know, more than the president going off half-cocked one day. So there are definitely concerns, and as the systems are uh, modernized uh, and, and interlinked more, uh, there is certainly, you know, that, that does raise the specter that there may be Additional concerns, I would assume and hope that the people that are in charge of this are, you know, aware of that and are working to um, keep them as secure as possible. But, uh, you know, no system is is completely, truly air gapped because, you know, ultimately you do have to rely on the rest of the world in order to get your 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 information. Um, so it is it is probably as safe as we want it to be right now, but that's not as safe as it should be. So since since we've mentioned it already, I suppose we should move into this modern political question, partly partly in response to the geopolitical situation as it is at the moment regarding nuclear weapons. This symbolic hands of the doomsday clock were moved closer to midnight earlier this year. They're now as close as they've ever been to midnight, indicating the risk of an apocalyptic threat from nuclear war or now climate change as well. We have an administration in the US that's led by an unpredictable president. A week ago, I wrote these questions for this interview and I was talking about North Korea. Now we have this standoff over Syria where he's threatening to launch uh, ballistic missiles at Russian forces or Syrian forces in Ru- uh, backed by Russia over Twitter. You know, a week ago we were worried about John Bolton, the uh, war hawk who is now national security advisor. And, you know, he, he's just taken charge and is already confronted with this diplomatic crisis. Some people say that as far as nuclear weapons deterrence goes in North Korea, he's playing with the madman theory of nuclear deterrence, where you leave the opposition questioning what you might do, while others think that the madman is not just a theory in his case. Um, What is your view on the risks of nuclear conflict uh, or escalation of a conventional conflict with the geopolitical situation as it is at the moment? 
uh, given that it's changing so rapidly and seems so unstable? Uh, it's much too high. It concerns me uh, greatly. Um, you know, again, I don't think that Donald Trump or anybody, particularly in the military, working for him, want to use nuclear weapons right now. But the point is that they are ready to use 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. You know, the, the Air Force and others bristle at the idea that our nuclear weapons, or particularly our ballistic missiles, are kept on hair trigger alert. They talk about all of the different safeguards that are in place that, you know, with regard to our, our land-based missiles, that uh, four launch officers actually have to agree in order for uh, any missiles to fly. So it's, you know, it's a two-man rule times times two and that there's you know procedures in place and so forth and that's that's all true but the point is that the weapons are ready to launch immediately so if and when the president gives the order and it's transmitted down the chain of command you know our crews practice regularly you know several times a week to be able to launch these weapons as rapidly as possible again because the the concern is that not only might the weapons be destroyed by an incoming uh, barrage of missiles. North Korea can't do this. Only, only Russia can today. The concern is not that our weapons would be destroyed, but that our command and control network is so fragile, particularly the human links and the communications links that link people together with the weapon systems, that you have to get these things off fast because otherwise you may not ever get them off at all. And that, that puts a premium on speed. And, uh, that means that any crisis you know, has the potential to escalate uh, pretty rapidly because, you know, the concern is, well, if we don't use these weapons, we might never be able to. We'll lose them. Uh, that 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 is a serious concern. And when you have somebody like John Bolton, you know, who has the presidency or, pres- you know, you said unstable. I mean, I, I think he's uh, he's mercurial. I mean, he's he's uh, I don't think he's playing the madman and I don't think he's mad per se. I just don't think he's capable of dealing with these issues in a thoughtful and rational way. And then when you have a national security advisor who, who plays to, you know, Donald Trump's worst uh, proclivities and also is of the belief that there is no problem in the world that can't be solved by going to war with it, uh, you create the potential for, you know, anything escalating far too rapidly. Uh, and, you know, when you have a president who has not only, uh, you know, never held government office before, but has no real interest in the details of policy, whether it's foreign or domestic policy, and is able to be persuaded by the last person he speaks to or the last person he watches on Fox News. And we know that White House officials, for example, are deliberately putting people on Fox News programs that they know the president watches to tell him what to do because he doesn't listen to them in actual briefings at the White House. Um, this creates a really, you know, really serious and I think, you know, unprecedented problem. I mean, a president who is so incautious and incurious is likely to make decisions based on little or no information or the wrong information and not realize what he's doing and stumble into a situation. And then because of his enormous ego, feel like, you know, he can't back down, even though that might be the best thing to do in a certain situation and escalates the, the crisis. And before you know it, the mushroom clouds are sprouting up, you know, over parts of the world. So, again, I, I certainly hope that doesn't happen. I'm doing everything that I can to make sure that that doesn't. But it's not a it's not a comforting 
situation. So, you know, we already know that John Bolton would like to, um, you know, destroy North Korea. He wants to tear up the Iran agreement. Uh, he doesn't think too highly of, of Syria. So, you know, we're in peacetime now, but by the time you put this program out, who knows? <laughs> it's very, uh, it's very worrisome. And, um, uh, you know, if, if anything good comes out of our current political moment, it will hopefully be that uh, people in the United States, and I, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but, you know, it, it may hold up there, too. Uh, people in the United States that have sort of sat on the sidelines politically and decided that there's you know, no reason to get engaged with politics because there's nothing they can do. You know, if, if those people start realizing that, in fact, they need to be involved and there is something they can do because the alternative is utter disaster. Um, if that gets us to a more uh, engaged and informed electorate, then, you know, something good will have come all out of all this. But first, we have to survive the present moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, it, as you say, it's all too feasible a scenario. Even his greatest supporters can't deny that he's prone to fits of peak and emotion, shall we say. And you can imagine a tweet coming tomorrow that says, you know, nuclear wars are good and easy to win or something along those lines. And then we're all in a lot of trouble. And uh, with the John Bolton situation, it's not. It's the idea that he would be there as a consultant, I think, in a, a dark uh, national security moment or something along these lines, I think has been a concern to a lot of people. I have to say, I hadn't heard of him before this uh, incident. The, the reaction amongst the people who I've sort of uh, been keeping track of on social media who know about these issues was pretty devastated when he got involved in the situation. Right. Well, and he's not just a consultant. He's the national security advisor. Mm-hmm. And in normal times, the national security advisor is not supposed to be an advocate. He is supposed to collect information and filter information for the president from all the national security agencies in the government and then allow the president to make an informed decision. But what I think Bolton is likely to do is just advocate his own views. Uh, and to the extent that the rest of the community, you know, agrees with that or not is really irrelevant. The president is, you know, not well informed, doesn't get briefings regularly, doesn't seem to really care. Uh, and he seems to like Bolton. Uh, and is likely to, you know, uh, agree with him. So, uh, you know, the, the thing to know about Bolton is that, uh, he is one of the people, he's certainly not the only one, but one of the people that brought us the Iraq war 15 years ago, uh, who felt that it was, uh, necessary and doable and that it would be cheap and effective. And, you know, here we are. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we've destroyed Iraq. Uh, we've seen the rise of ISIS in part because of that war. Uh, if you thought that that was a good thing, then you probably think John Bolton having the president's ear every day is a good thing. And if you think it was a disaster, then you should be concerned. A case of information flow to the president and the key decision maker. And you've been a wonderful person for information flow, as well as your career in academic journals, policy literature, popular press. You're part of a group of important voices using social media, uh, at Atomic Analyst on Twitter. For those who are interested, it definitely should follow. Um, as a platform for addressing public misconceptions about nuclear weapons, there was a bit of a furore earlier on in the Trump regime when he made some claims that the nuclear arsenal had been totally modernized and uh, completely revamped. You know, you disputed that. And also there are claims that are sometimes made about missile defense shields that I see a lot of people uh, disputing and trying to dispel myths about nuclear command and control structure, uh, civil defense and missile defense. If there were some myths that you could dispel about nuclear weapons for the general public, messages you could communicate, 
what do you think you would focus on? Oh, wow. Well, there's so many. Uh, I mean, we've already, <laughs> we've already, <clears throat> we've touched on some of them. Uh, so in no particular order, nuclear weapons are not inexpensive. It's true that as a current percentage of the military budget, it's, it's a relatively low cost, but it's going to be increasing rapidly over the next, uh, five or 10 years. And it's going to continue at that, that high level for the next 20 years or so, if not beyond. So again, you know, in today's dollars, we've spent $10 trillion on nuclear weapons and weapons related programs. Uh, that makes it the third most expensive U.S. government expenditure after all other national defense costs. So that's including the cost of World War II, Korea, Vietnam, the Iraq War, all the counterterrorism stuff that we're doing. Uh, and number two uh, on the ledger is uh, Social Security, um, semi-government pensions for people after age 67 or so. Uh, and then nuclear weapons come in at number three. So it's the third greatest expenditure of our taxpayer dollars in our history. That is not inconsequential. That has very serious economic and policy ramifications for the country that I don't think we've really begun to grapple with. Uh, now, the other side would argue, well, to the extent that nuclear deterrence works, that means that nuclear weapons are cheap. But again, as I said earlier, there's a lot of things that we have done and still do with regard to nuclear weapons that not only are not helping nuclear deterrence, but are undermining it. So it's not correct to say that all the money that we've spent, therefore, made us stronger um, and safer. Um, I think a lot of people assume that, uh, you know, uh, nuclear weapons just sort of uh, sit around somewhere waiting to be used. And the reality is that they are constantly in transit uh, on our highways, uh, you know, moving to and from military installations or between the military and Department of Energy installations because our Department of Energy is involved in building and maintaining our nuclear arsenal, something that most people don't understand. The Department of Energy is actually a successor to the Atomic Energy Commission, which is itself is a successor to the Manhattan Project from World War II, which is why it is doing uh, this work, but I, a long line of people in government, including a surprising and shocking number of Republicans, not least of which uh, Rick Perry, the current Secretary of Energy, have no idea that the Department of Energy is really the Department of Nuclear Weapons and that two-thirds of its budget year in and year out go toward nuclear weapons and weapons-related programs. Uh, and yet routinely they call for the abolition of the Department of Energy because it's a waste of taxpayer resources, not understanding that what they're actually calling for is an abolition of the U.S. nuclear arsenal. So, you know, good on them if that's what they want to do, but they really don't they don't get it. And as soon as they understand what it is, they change their tune and decide, well, OK, actually, I guess that is a really important agency. You know, we do need to keep that. Um, but if you're wondering why we don't have a good energy policy in this country, it's because the department that should be focused on that is spending two thirds of its money and most of its personnel on nuclear weapons and not on energy policy. Um, the idea that nuclear weapons kept us safe during the Cold War, I mentioned already that we killed large numbers of our own people with regard to nuclear weapons testing and production activities, and that continues today. There's an enormous amount of toxic and radioactive waste that is sitting around the country at facilities uh, that has not been properly uh, monitored or disposed of that continues to harm the health of people who uh, live in the vicinity of those facilities, people who actually, in many cases, worked on on building nuclear weapons in the first place. 
and continues to pollute our groundwater and our soil. Uh, and that problem was exacerbated by this sort of open-ended uh, nature of nuclear deterrence, where we built thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons and only, you know, very much later, really at the end of the Cold War, began to consider uh, the consequences of that. So at the end of the day, if we ever end up cleaning up all of that waste and disposing of it properly, it will exceed the cost of building the nuclear weapons in the first place. So um, that's something that you know, I don't think most people understand. And even if we were to get rid of all of our nuclear weapons today, we would still have this waste issue that would take decades to resolve. So that's something that needs to uh, be dealt with. Uh, other myths that there are checks on the president, uh, that he alone cannot order the use of nuclear weapons. That's absolutely false. There are people that are involved in the process, but they are advisors only. Nobody can uh, countermand a presidential order to use nuclear weapons. And uh, like I said earlier, the only way that uh, the military would not uh, carry out a presidential nuclear strike order would be mass insubordination from the very top of the chain of command all the way down on the bottom. And if you think that depending on people to willingly disobey orders and disobey all the training that they've taken over their entire careers to be able to, you know, use these nuclear weapons and use them quickly, uh, that is not a good policy for, um, you're not going to be very safe and secure in the long run if that's what you're uh, depending on. So the reality is the president can do that. There are some people in Congress that are interested in changing that, particularly with regard to the first use of nuclear weapons. So, you know, if we are under attack, there are no constraints on the president. But if the president just out of, out of the blue wants to start a nuclear war, that, you know, Congress should need to get involved. At least that's what these members of Congress are saying. That's not going to get a vote in Congress now because Republicans control Congress and they're not interested in that. But after November, after the elections in November, things could look um, uh, very different. And then I guess last but not least is the myth of, of nuclear deterrence itself. The belief that uh, we have not had a cold war and that nobody or in a cold war, we've not had a nuclear war and that uh, nobody has used nuclear weapons against us because we have maintained this very uh, powerful, and effective nuclear deterrent. Um, there are a lot of reasons why nuclear weapons haven't been used. But one fundamental thing that people don't understand about nuclear deterrence, it's not like the weapons, like I said, are just sitting around somewhere in a bunker or a silo and that we, you know, we haul them out in a crisis and, you know, point them to people and say, you better back down or otherwise, you know, you're going to start eating nuclear warheads. Uh, no, these weapons are actively deployed on submarines on ballistic missiles in the heartland of the United States, on bombers. Uh, true, they're not, you know, flying around. Bombers aren't flying around on alert like they were during the 1950s and 1960s. Uh, but the weapons are out there and they can be fired within a matter of just a few minutes. And they cannot, with the exception of the bombers, uh, be recalled. So, um, you know, the the, uh, the fact that we have not had the nuclear war can be chalked up to any number of things, including the fact that, for much of the Cold War, the Soviet Union wasn't interested in having a nuclear war with us, even though we were convinced that they were about to strike us and they were convinced of uh, of, of the same. But we just fundamentally um, misunderstood each other. Um, but the you know the reality is that the very posture that we maintain actually makes and made during the Cold War a nuclear war more likely you know than it needs to be. And the fact that we don't 
understand and appreciate that makes the situation even more dangerous if we were to get into another crisis today, particularly with regard to a nuclear, you know, armed state. I mean, people, I, there's a guy I know, um, not well, but he's just published a book about nuclear strategy. He was advocating for nuclear superiority, much like Donald Trump wants. And he believes that we should attack North Korea to send a message to them and to the rest of the world that you cannot have nuclear weapons and threaten the United States. But North Korea has nuclear weapons and North Korea has the ability, if not to attack the United States directly, to certainly inflict severe harm upon our allies in South Korea and, uh, and Japan. And, uh, you know, to write off hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in those countries because you want to send a message, I think is, you know, just fundamentally dangerous. So, uh, you know, nuclear deterrence is not all it's cracked up to be, I guess, is what I would say. And, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it works until it doesn't. And we've been very fortunate that it appears to have worked. But again, there's lots of other reasons why nuclear weapons have not been used. And luck, as we talked about earlier, is a big one, is, is a big portion of that. Mm-hmm. So I suppose in some ways the message there is don't think that there's no way we can change anything about the current nuclear weapons policy that we have because deterrence is, uh, has to come above everything else. Uh, you mentioned Rick Perry. Um, for those listeners from perhaps Australia and the UK who, who don't know, he when he ran for president, he wanted to abolish the Department of Energy and famously forgot that that was the department he wanted to abolish and then didn't know that it was in charge of nuclear weapons. And now he's secretary of the Department of Energy. So it, it's the sort of trajectory that doesn't speak well to the weight that's placed on expertise when it comes to nuclear weapons policy with the current administration. But if after four years or Trump, the, the world and the electorate suddenly decided that expertise and facts were important again and and they put you in charge of the U.S. nuclear policy um, or, 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 you know, just as a message for you to send to people who are listening, what would you want them to do? What measures do you think would make us safer? Sure. Thank you for uh, promoting me above my station. <laughs> um, yeah, and that, that story about Rick Perry. So, yeah, when he was nominated to be or when Donald Trump said, I want you to be secretary of energy, he thought he was going to be in charge of of energy issues and that he would be in charge of, you know, like oil and natural gas. But that's actually the Department of the Interior, uh, not the Department of Energy. And he discovered only after the fact that he would be in charge of of nuclear weapons, which he knows absolutely nothing about. Uh, which, by the way, is, you know, I mean, the last secretary of energy uh, was a physicist. And the one before that was a Nobel Prize winning physicist. So we've come down quite a long ways. Uh, so what would I want people to know? What would I want them to do? Um, uh, I would want to start having a, uh, in this country, a, a rational, logical discussion about uh, what we want out of our nuclear arsenal, what we think it provides us in terms of security, uh, what we are actually paying for it versus what we think we're paying for it. Uh, and then, you know, bring in a larger discussion about what it is, you know, how that impacts our security relationships with not only our adversaries, but, but also our allies. Again, there's a, you know, there's a, a growing movement around the world to seek uh, to have nuclear weapons abolished. I mean, there is a treaty now that makes, uh, uh, you know, uh, nuclear weapons, uh, illegal. The nuclear powers are not going to sign up to it. Uh, but nevertheless, it is changing the terms of the debate over whether this is, you know, uh, as, as a matter of ongoing concern that we should continue to rely on nuclear weapons 
in perpetuity uh, to to protect our our security and that of our allies. Uh, so I'd want to have a discussion about that. Since I'm in the United States, I would want to you know focus on what it is that we are uh, are spending uh, and why. Uh, and, um, start, you know, uh, I, I would extend the, the new start treaty. This is the treaty that, uh, President Obama negotiated in 2010, uh, with Russia that caps the, uh, strategic arsenals of the United States and Russia at 1,550 deployed nuclear warheads. Because of the counting rules, we actually have more weapons than that. Uh, but that's, that's what the, that's what the legal cap is. Uh, that treaty is going to expire. Uh, in a couple of years, unless Donald Trump and Vladimir, Vladimir Putin agree to extend it for an additional five years, which they can do without any involvement of Congress in the United States or the Duma uh, in um, in Russia. Uh, Putin is certainly interested in doing that. Uh, he doesn't want and can't afford another arms race with the United States. Donald Trump is seeking nuclear superiority and has called the treaty a bad deal, which is fundamentally false. But that's his that's his perspective on it. And his new national security advisor, John Bolton, doesn't think it was a very good treaty either. So if that treaty falls, it, and, and which could happen in a couple of years, it'll be the first time in decades where we have we will have no legal constraints, international legal constraints on the nuclear arsenals of the United States or Russia, which means that both countries will be free to do whatever they want. And that could lead to a very dangerous situation and also a very costly situation for for both sides. So I want to see that extended and I want to engage in negotiations to uh, uh, further constrain our arsenals and to start talking about constraints on short range or tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, instead of threatening North Korea with nuclear attack, I would move toward working with them to constrain their nuclear ambitions. The goal should ultimately be the denuclearization uh, of that region. Denuclearization as North Korea understands it, and as most of the world understands it, is not how Donald Trump understands it. Denuclearization for Donald Trump is North Korea gets rid of its nuclear weapons. Denuclearization for North Korea is the United States and South Korea stop threatening North Korea, pledge probably not to attack it with nuclear weapons, and the Korean War formally ends. So it's not just an armistice, but there's an actual peace treaty. And then at that point, and only at that point, will North Korea eliminate its nuclear weapons. Uh, but they would probably also want to see some sort of unification of the peninsula. So these are two very different things. And going into a negotiation like that where you fundament, fundamentally misunderstand, misunderstand what your opponent is uh, offering to do, I think is just setting this up to be a massive failure, uh, which then Trump will blame on North Korea, and then who knows what's going to happen after that. So there's any number of things that we that we can and should be doing. I, I guess most importantly, I would want the public to be much more Engage on these issues. Most of the time, uh, these discussions occur in hearings, uh, you know, in Congress to the extent that there are hearings or, you know, among a very select group of people, uh, like myself, honestly, who are paying attention to it, this, but, you know, anybody in this country who pays taxes is paying into this system. We are all for better or for worse, you know, under the protection, quote unquote, of these weapons and we're paying for them. And so we have a say and we can elect people who, better reflect our views. And I think we should be asking of those people who are running for Congress in the fall what they plan to do about this and make them commit to, you know, something definitive with regard to budgets, uh, treaties and so forth. And then when they get elected, if they get elected, hold them to it and make sure that we do have some fundamental change. 
I'm not saying we should do all this unilaterally. We shouldn't. We shouldn't be involving uh, Russia and other countries. This is ultimately, you know, the, the abolition or the you know, global disarmament, uh, global zero, as some people call it, should be the goal. But it's going to take, you know, some years to get there. But uh, it can happen. And we just need to uh, uh, be willing to work with and talk to other 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 countries about it. And uh, to think that it can happen, I think, is a mistake. I mean, what is the most significant thing that has happened with nuclear weapons in the last, let's say, 25 or 30 years? Uh, what what happened at the end of the Cold War when uh, President George H.W. Bush was president is that we unilaterally, we, the United States, unilaterally got rid of about half of our Minuteman missiles. We took all of our ground-based weapons out of Europe and nuclear weapons out of Europe and South Korea we removed all of our short-range nuclear weapons from Navy surface ships and submarines. And we did that unilaterally. We did it because the weapons were no longer needed and because we wanted to send a message to Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the time president of the Soviet Union, that we wanted him to do the same, that we wanted to ratchet down the dangers and work toward more uh, work toward a more peaceful world. And we did. And those things happened. And that, you know, Congress didn't mandate that. There was no, you know, mass uprising on the part of the public for that to happen. There was no law or treaty that required it. It was simply a unilateral, a unilateral action of one very forward-looking president, one that, quite frankly, did not receive the level of attention or appreciation that it really is is due. So things can change, and they can change quickly with the right people, um, you know, in office. But uh, that depends on, on any number of things, and one of them is having an engaged an informed electorate. So I guess that's where I, that's a lot, but that's where I'd come down. And as you say, if, if one good thing is going to come out of the situation at the moment with doomsday clock hands moving and people starting to think about this issue again, is it that it might be that this uh, post-Cold War, perhaps complacency on the part of the public when it comes to nuclear weapons and the threat that they pose to, to all of us will be, uh, will be somewhat ameliorated and people will start to think and debate about this a little bit more Stephen, I'd like to say thank you so much for your time. You've been very generous with your time. And thank you so much as well for keeping these issues um, being a source of expertise, I suppose, for a lot of people, including myself, and uh, keeping these issues in the public attention uh, at, at a time when it seems they're more important than they have been for some time. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me on. And as I just close off by saying to your listeners, you know, I know most people don't want to think about this. They don't like to think about this. Uh, that doesn't make the problem go away. The reality is that we can and we have affected change in the past by getting involved, and we can do that again, and we will. That was Stephen Schwartz, the Atomic Analyst. You can follow him on Twitter, at Atomic Analyst, and you can read plenty of his articles online. The Atomic Audit, as well, is still available to purchase. I got my copy via Google Books, but you can get it through plenty of different online retailers, and it comes highly recommended. And that's our show for this week. You can follow us on Twitter at PhysicsPod. We have a Facebook page if you're still on that website, and you can always contact us with your comments, questions, and concerns via the contact form over at www.physicspodcast.com. I read everything that gets sent through there, and I respond to everything that makes sense, and if you want to tell me what you'd like to hear from the show, I'd love to hear it. You can donate to the show via links on the website to help us cover hosting costs, and in case you think it's worth a few dollars, pounds, yen, or euros for hours and hours of free independent content. If you don't want to go through the hassle of doing that, though, please do tell as many people as you can about the show. It's not a show if you don't have listeners. When we come back, there's going to be an overview of the series that we've just emerged from. 
Episodes include the apocalypses that didn't happen, the ways we might hope to avoid them in the future, and where we'll go next. I'll see you then. Until next time, take care. You better make some preparations. There's no time for hesitations. Compile a list of tips. Our theme music is Get Ready for the Apocalypse by Astrometrics. <laughs>